In today's show, we talk with a scientist who works in cancer research. Her specialty is prostate cancer, and you'll hear about her quest to find a better way to screen for the disease. You'll also hear how comparing the DNA between normal and abnormal cells has become a key to our understanding of cancer. Did you know, for example, that 99% of your DNA, Chris, and my DNA are pretty much the same? Sure. Well, we share that much with bonobos and chimpanzees too, thanks to common ancestry. Well, that's you and the chimpanzees, but um, (laughs) it's still a surprise that we certainly don't look 99% alike. I know. It's funny, isn't it? Wonders of DNA. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Just before the holiday, we visited Cancer Research UK in Cambridge. If you've ever taken the road around Addenbrooke's, you'd have seen signs to CRUK and maybe wondered what that stands for. Aha, but what actually drew us there was the news that Cancer Research UK scientists have found that the presence of a particular protein helps to distinguish between prostate cancers that need treatment and those that may never seriously harm the patient. The protein has been found to make a prostate tumour more likely to invade healthy tissue around it. Patients with high levels of this protein might be the ones that need surgery or chemotherapy or radiotherapy, while the patients with low levels of this protein might just need keeping an eye on or a bit of monitoring. Lead author of this study, Dr. Haley Whitaker, is hopeful that tests to detect this protein, called NAALADL2, quite a name, might spare patients unnecessary treatments that are hard on the body. And a lot of people are affected by this disease because each year 41,000 men, Roger, can you believe it, are diagnosed with prostate cancer in the UK alone. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to hear my chat with Dr. Haley Whitaker, Cancer Research UK scientist at the Cambridge Institute. We're going to learn about her exciting research. So let's have a listen to Dr. Haley. You've been studying prostate cancer recently, Haley, is that right? I've been studying prostate cancer now for about 10 years. <laughs> I know, I did my PhD in prostate cancer, which I finished back in 2003. Since then, I've been doing further work on prostate cancer, and probably in the last three or four years I've moved into what we would call translational research so more translating the basic science into something that we can use in the clinical setting so I've moved to that area and developing new markers to try and diagnose the disease or or find prognostic markers to indicate which patients are actually going to have aggressive disease. To put markers into plain everyday speak you mean looking for a test? A marker or biomarker can be anything. It's just a protein, DNA, RNA or a chemical that will change to reflect a physiological state or treatment and that we can measure that in blood or in tissue or in a biological fluid. So it's something that we can develop a test for. And what's wrong with some of the tests that exist? For example, there used to be a test called acid phosphatase that used to be a measure Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so prostatic acid phosphatase was okay, but the sensitivity and the specificity was quite poor. Okay. So since then, there's something called the PSA test. Okay. Prostate-specific antigen has come along, and that's probably been available for 10 or 15 years. Again, it's, it's okay, and it's really widely used, actually, now. But again, quite poor sensitivity and specificity. So of about four men who have a raised PSA test, only one of those will actually have prostate cancer. So all these men have raised PSA tests, 
get referred for further investigations, get mm-hmm. obviously very concerned they've got prostate cancer, and then it turns out actually they haven't at all, and you know, and that's very difficult for the patient. So we want to try and avoid all those unnecessary trips to the hospital, unnecessary biopsies, unnecessary further tests that might be carried out because we think a patient may have prostate cancer. So if we have a better test, okay. then we won't need to do that anymore. So at the moment, we don't offer PSA screening in the UK. They do in, in the States, in America, and um, they do in some places in Europe, but within the UK we don't routinely offer PSA testing, and that's because of the poor sensitivity and specificity of the test. You know, the idea is that if we did offer the PSA test, actually we'd have so many people referred, and so few of them would actually have prostate cancer. So, you know, we really don't want to be um, looking at everybody, so we don't do that routinely at the moment. The other thing is, everybody that has prostate cancer isn't going to die from their prostate cancer. That's good news. <laughs> it's absolutely, it's fantastic news. And we categorise into two groups. We call them the tigers and the pussycats, and you may have heard about this. No. The, the pussycats are these indolent cancers that um, are very low-grade cancers that actually are very unlikely to progress and, and become anything nasty in the lifetime of the patient. The patient has probably lived with that cancer already for 10, 15, 20 years and will continue to do so until they die from something else. So we don't want to be treating those cancers. What we do want to be treating is the tigers, the really nasty cancers that are going to progress very, very quickly that kill the patient if we don't intervene. We want to be identifying at the very beginning which cancers are going to be nasty, which cancers are going to be okay. So we don't over-treat the good cancers, but we do manage to identify the nasty ones and eradicate them before they do any harm. There's lots of different elements, if you like, to prostate cancer diagnosis. It's not just diagnosing the patients, it's diagnosing the right patients, and that's really very important. So the key thing for us is to find new biological markers that we can use to try and identify, A, which patients have prostate cancer, so the diagnostic biomarkers, and then which patients are going to do badly, so the prognostic biomarkers. So we need to find molecules, whether protein, RNA, DNA, that we can use to answer those two different questions. And they're very, very different questions. So we might look for protein A combined with DNA signature B might actually answer a question about diagnosis. And then a completely different group of, of biomarkers might answer the question about aggressiveness. And the other thing is, as a scientist, I'm looking at combining different markers. So you mentioned prostatic acid phosphatase earlier, and I was talking about PSA. That's a single protein that we're looking at in all patients. And at the moment, that's what we do. We look at PSA. We don't look at lots of different things. But we know that prostate cancer is very, very complex. Every patient is slightly different. The disease doesn't have a single genetic driver that's driving it forward like some of the other cancers. So actually, it seems a little bit bizarre when you know it's such a complex disease to have a single protein that's going to work for everybody. And it isn't. Um, So we're going to actually have to have maybe five or six proteins or three proteins and a DNA marker to actually get a really, really good, robust test that works for everybody. And so it's moving away from this idea of one size fits all, I think, and and actually multiplexing things and putting them together is the way forward. So we have a very interesting kind of cancer in the sense that it's not often fatal. And we have some... we, we are looking to improve the diagnosis of it. So Absolutely. how can you go about doing this? What are your raw materials? So we have patients who've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And we take their tumour tissue, we take their normal tissue, and we do expression array analysis. So we look at the RNA profile in the tumour compared to in the normal. And then we also have 
all of the clinical information. So we're really lucky here. We're based just across the way from Adam Brooks Hospital. So we have a great team of clinical nurses who collect samples from the patients and a great team of surgeons who do the operations. And even more so, we have great patients who are happy for us to work with their samples because if we didn't have those patients, we couldn't do a lot of the work that we do. So we take those samples from the patients, we do the RNA analysis and we look at the differences between the benign, for example, and the tumour regions and say, what expression profiles have changed between the benign and the tumour? And that will give us some idea of which proteins, which RNA, which DNA we might be interested in. So that's one element that we do. The other thing is we take all of the clinical information associated with the patients and say, which RNA associated with aggressive cancers goes up or down in relation to the ones that's not aggressive. And we've done that so far. Um, and that allows us to identify the markers that we're interested in and then we can go on and look at them in a different way. The other thing that we're very much involved with at the moment is something called the ICGC, International Cancer Genome Consortium Project. Mm. A big, long name. Essentially, this is a global project where lots and lots of different cancers are being studied. We're focusing on prostate cancer and esophageal cancer on the Addenbrook site. I'm specifically working on the prostate cancer side of that. And this is to sequence the whole genome of um, patients with prostate cancer. So again, we take the tumour tissue from the patient and we we sequence the whole genome and then we look to see where the mutations are, where the deletions are in the DNA and then how this might actually impact and cause a tumour to develop. So we're using multiple different strands to combine to give us actually something we can take forward and develop into a test. I think the key thing is that, you know, it's not just one thing, it's you know, looking at mutations, SNPs, small nucleotide polymorphisms, looking at the proteins that are coded for by these mutated genes as well. Do these change? And these are what we are going on to develop into markers. Let's supposing I have the, the prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. You will then take a piece of prostate cancer yeah. and you will also stick it through the yeah. same machine. Yes. So essentially we'll compare your genome that we'll get from your prostate tumour yeah. cells to the DNA we get in your blood and then we'll be able to say if you like we use your blood as a baseline that's the DNA you were born with and then we say on top of that what mutations have you gained since you were born essentially is is what we're looking at that's what's essentially caused you to develop a tumour and so that specifically is what we're looking at and how much difference are we looking at? tiny proportion in terms of numbers we like to say that 99% of DNA between human beings is exactly the same Okay, yours and mine type of thing. Yes, yours and mine, we share 99% of the same DNA, and there's only 1% difference. So we're looking at that 1% difference between all of the different patients, and actually, are there any commonalities between the different patients, for example? So are there patients who have have got the mutations in the same gene? So P53, for example. What's P53? So P53 um, is one of the major oncogenes. It's a major driver in many, many cancers, such as ovarian, breast cancers. And we know that if something goes wrong or you get a mutation in P53, you know, it's, it's not good news. Um, it's never been particularly strongly linked to prostate cancer, but there may be another molecule, another gene, that's essentially the P53 for prostate cancer, if you like, the same sort of thing. Um, and it's just the only way we're going to find that out is by doing this sequencing study. Okay, so actually sequencing is not routinely done on people with cancer? Absolutely not. I mean, I worked many moons ago, I worked at the Sanger Centre um, down the way, and I was involved in the, the human genome sequencing project then, and I think it took us 10 years to sequence the whole human genome. We can now do it in about two or three days. It's very, very, very fast. But it's still two to three days for each individual genome, so it's not something we can do routinely. But we could maybe look at fragments, 
So, for example, if we knew, you know, the fibroblast growth factor receptor, FGFR, we know that quite often has mutations in some cancers. And we know that the drugs that target that particular receptor can be affected if there are mutations. So, actually, we do quite often sequence just that particular gene. And that's quite cheap and it's relatively quick to do because it's just a single gene. But whole genome sequencing, not so much. There is a big sort of strategy going on across the UK, actually, to sequence whole genomes for many thousands of patients. But I think that's still to really get off the ground and we've still to really see any you know, any results from that. So it's really only just starting. And we will be doing some of that on site. But I think definitely the ICGC, the International Cancer Genome Consortium Project, is the way that we'll get the results quite quickly and then we can look in lots of other patients and see okay. if the results we found in the patients we've looked at actually work for everybody else. Because yeah. we're doing large numbers. I'm just trying to work out how mechanised. Are you saying one person can do one essay in three days? The whole genome sequencing, it's a big machine, um, and that's one machine can do one genome in three days. And can't do anything else. And it can't do anything else. Which is one of the reasons why we're taking this two-pronged approach. So rather than trying to just sequence everybody, we're focusing in on the molecules we think are the most interesting. And then we're developing things like the PSA test, like the prostatic acid phosphatase test. And the way we do that here, we have um, a biomarker pipeline that we've developed. So we um, look in tissue using immunohistochemistry and we say, this molecule we think is interesting. Um, Let's have a look in the tissue from patients with and without cancer. Does it look like it's up or down regulated in those particular patients? And and if when we look at the patient samples, it looks like it's a, a reflection of what's going on in the tissue. We say, this is great. Now let's look and see in the biological fluids from those patients. So we're talking about serum, plasma, urine samples from patients. Can we actually measure this this molecule in those different things um, so that the patient doesn't have to have a biopsy, potentially? Because mm. that would be fantastic, wouldn't it, if the patient didn't need to have a biopsy? Patients love the idea of a urine test because, you know, even Easy. men don't like needles. Even just giving a blood test, you know, some people really don't like giving blood tests, me included. So if we could have a urine-based test, that would be fantastic. But even just a blood test would be would be good as well. Rather than um, sampling, doing biopsies of your prostate, we're just going to take a blood test and we'll be able to tell with some accuracy whether or not you have prostate cancer. And I think that's that's very good. And so what we've done is we have this pipeline here um, in the Cambridge Institute um, and we've done this in collaboration with Addenbrooke's Hospital, with the clinical biochemistry department over in Addenbrooke's Hospital, so that when we do find markers, and we have got a few that we're working very much on, we can work with them very closely and we can develop a test that can work within the NHS right now as the NHS stands on equipment that they already have that isn't going to cost an arm and a leg. Okay. And, and, and I think we kind of have to have a kind of near future response to biomarkers and then maybe something that's you know a little bit further in the future such as a genomic testing which may not actually get to fruition for another 10 or 15 years but you know these these protein based tests that we're working on with clinical biochemistry they are something we could get into clinic very very quickly within five years because we're working with what we've already got and that collaboration that we have with them is extremely useful to us really because the systems we're using and the way we're developing things it's exactly what they have over there at the hospital. It just it makes it makes me feel as though the work that I'm doing has got a much better chance of actually making a difference to a patient. Of, of becoming a routine yes. investigation. Yes. So you're faced with a cancer. You, you've got a piece of tissue. As, yes. And there are hundreds of proteins in there. Thousands, yeah. Thousands of proteins. And how many weird ones are there? <laughs> I mean, how many are... 
So we, we do a few things. We look at expression of mRNA, which mRNA obviously codes a protein, so it's, it's, it's not a direct correlation, but it will give us some idea. So what is an expression array? So an expression array essentially is a bit like a glass slide, and it has um, probes that will recognise a specific piece of RNA that codes for a specific gene on there. And there are tens of thousands of genes, or tens of thousands of probes that will recognise genes. So it allows us to look at tens of thousands of genes and their expression all in one go. And this is something we do very, very routinely. It generates huge amounts of data. So, you know, if you're getting tens and tens of thousands of genes and you're running this on maybe patients with cancer, patients without cancer, and then you've got ten patients with ten patients, now you've got all of a sudden you've got lots and lots of data points. So what we then do is we, we take uh, make use of our bioinformatics facility that we have here. So this is um, a, a group of individuals who really specialise in, in actually analysing this data and, and giving us the end results, if you like. So I'm in a very fortuitous position that I work here. Yeah. Um, not my area of expertise. So actually we say to them, here's our experimental results. Can you analyse these and tell us what are the things that change the most? And so they'll normalise the data. So for, you know, for loading, for how much RNA went on there in the first place, they'll do all of that. Um, and then they'll just give us out the, the end results and say, these are the things that go up. This is how much they go up by. This is um, the p-value. This is the confidence we have in this result. Yeah. And they'll do the reciprocal for the things that go down as well. So um, extremely powerful technology. And it just gives us a real heads up, actually, to what we can, you know, what, what to go after, what are the things that we should be looking at. The other thing we do is we use um, other people's data. Sounds like a bit of a cheat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. Um, so other people have published in the area of prostate cancer and one of the things that other people have done that we haven't done so much of here is they've got um, data from patients and lots and lots of follow-up. So as we talked about at the very beginning, patients with prostate cancer tend to do really, really well and very few of them or, or only one in four of them will actually succumb to their prostate cancer. So we need, we need a lot of follow-up from patients. We need 10 years' worth of, of data after a patient has, re- has been diagnosed to say who's going to you know do badly who's going to do well and that's quite a long time and so other people have got collections and have done similar work not exactly the same but similar work so we can look at their data and say we've pulled out these exciting genes from our expression data what are they doing in their data do they link at all Mm. to to this prognosis to how well or or how badly the patient is going to do so we can link those things together um, using another person's data Um, and that just adds power to the data that we've got actually the more we do that the more powerful our data is because if something changes in our data and changes in somebody else's data um, and in somebody else's data then it means it's very robust and it's more more likely that it will make it into clinic okay well you said Hayley that you've been working in the field for 10 years so what have you seen in 10 years what has changed so I think actually the whole of cancer research is undergoing a huge change sometimes I go and speak at Race for Life for example and what I say to the women when they do Race for Life is that at the moment we have the tools that will allow us to answer the questions that we've never had before so we've known for a long time we've probably known for the last 10 or 15 years what the questions are we want to ask to be able to address cancer but but we've never had the tools that would allow us to do that all of a sudden technology has taken huge leaps and bounds and this is to do with whole genome sequencing and expression arrays that we've talked about Um, the whole genomic area has just taken huge leaps and bounds and actually in the last even just in the last five years 
Um, and all of a sudden, we can now start to apply these techniques to different cancers and say, actually, you know, we can answer these questions. And so, you know, things are just moving in, in so, so, so quickly. And it's allowing us to do things like personalised medicine. So, you know, it's one size doesn't fit everybody. Actually, this drug is the best drug for, for, for this patient and a different drug is the best thing for another patient. And so it allows us to do those things. So I think that stratified medicine is what we call it, is, is one of the hugest advances. And it's only a, a, we're only able to do that because of the technology changes that have happened, massive sea change in the last five to ten years. And are we optimistic? Hugely optimistic. I do think we are getting to the point where we're starting to make a difference, and that, that's the huge thing. There's so much coming through now. There's so many exciting new, new markers, exciting new drug targets, and exciting new drugs are coming through, and, and ways that we can use the drugs we already have better yeah. because we have those genomic um, capabilities now. I think that's, that's really going to make a difference. Can you give us a little career profile? Now, what do you think turned you into a scientist? I think I was born a scientist. I really do. So my father, he worked in the chemical industry. When I was a child, I used to get all the chemicals that my parents thought I couldn't reach and mix them all together and, and, and apply them to plants to try and kill them in the garden. I was born and raised up in Manchester and um, did my first degree up there. Then was a bit interested in biotechnology, so I did a, a master's by research down in Kent. And this was the time when it was whole genome sequencing, you know, sequencing yeah. the, the human genome was the big thing and everybody was talking about it. So I came and worked at the Sanger for a year or two and worked on sequencing the human genome and then realised, actually, I wanted to I wanted to put more thought into what I was doing. I wanted to have a bit more input into what I was doing. And so I decided to go and um, do a PhD. So I went and did a PhD at Imperial College in um, in prostate cancer research, you know, wow. um, I did um, androgen receptor signaling. So the prostate um, cancer growth is regulated by androgens. So I, I did androgen receptor signaling, um, which is very basic science related to prostate cancer, and, and I enjoyed it. And when I came to work in Cambridge, I originally was working very much on prostate cancer and the basic science aspect. But I think it's fair to say that I've probably found my niche moving into this more translational area, um, where I'm doing the more applied work that is actually relevant to patients and it's definitely something that motivates me a lot more than the basic science did. Many thanks to Principal Scientific Officer Dr Hayley Whitaker from Cancer Research UK. Let's all hope for a great result there in clinical trials. To learn more you can find links to this research on our podcast page. It's cambridge105.fm. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.